Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 34 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, September the 24th. First, I'll be talking to Drew Coley, Vice President of Growth and Strategy at GZGo, Australia's first digital supermarket. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. But now, let's talk to Drew Coley. Drew, tell me how does GZGo work? So basically, GZGo, first of all, is a part of GZ Global Company, right, which is based out of multiple continents and countries. GZGo is a rapid, uh, rapid grocery delivery service. Because we have identified a gap in the market that, you know, you can get to a space in a day, but when you need to get your groceries, you still have to wait three to four days from Coles and Woolworths and other people. So it's like, hey, what happened if you can get your groceries within just 20 minutes? You go to the web app, you click, you tap, and then you just see the driver outside your door within just 20 minutes. And you can get anything that your everyday range and at all affordable prices, same as supermarket. So where do you get the products from? So we work directly with the brands as a part of our offering. So we work with over 100 multinational brands. We have our own dark stores across the Sydney. So which means it's small warehouses, which means the dark stores are closed for the customers. The customers cannot come in for shopping or you know pickups. It's all delivery only. So we have small warehouses where our pickers and packers pack your groceries. Our drivers will go on e-bike and deliver the groceries to you. And uh, so you have access to all these brands and you take it just from the brands themselves. Exactly. Uh, so as a part of uh, as a part of GZ Global, we already uh, were working with all these brands because we work with the brands to create the experiences for them in like five to six different countries. So we do a lot of work on food delivery side with the brands, like such as like, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Mars Wrigley, Mondelez. We do a lot of work with them and it was easy to migrate saying that like, you know, hey, we're already working with you a lot of stuff on food delivery. And as we are starting our uh, expansion in the grocery delivery, so it was an easy transition as opposed to, you know, just building something very new or building those relationships. These are global brands. Do you have Australian brands in there as well? Yes, we do work with some Australian brands, right? Like, for example, Lucky Nuts and all that stuff, the local ones. And now since, you know, being uh, launching in Australia, we got interest from multiple local brands, which we are trying to take it on board. And in fact, uh, we are 
building a section in our app as well in our web app which will be like totally catering saying that you know uh, local producers or local brands and all that stuff because we buy all the produce from our local farmers and you know like and this is where we are uh, aiming to promote like you know local localization so helping this small entrepreneur who are coming up with new brands in the market helping them get featured on our web apps and hence you know getting customers access to their products in just 20 minutes so basically i can get whatever i need from the supermarket from cheesy go is that right exactly that's right you can get your pet food you can get like you know food for your pets you can get uh, ice cream cakes in fact we just launched yesterday you can get your normal pantry drinks uh you know ice creams ready meals anything so whatever the supermarket sells you sell is that right exactly and so what's the cost like so basically uh, as the margins uh, in the supermarket industry the margins are there but for us the cost base is really less because if you see we do not have to have that fancy stores right that supermarkets have to build and what and other thing is that like you know with supermarkets with customers coming in and and it leads to a lot of like you know extra overheads like you know cleaning costs and all that stuff and electricity costs so we, we tr- tend to avoid all those costs and hence pass on that savings to our customers right so that's the whole goal that we had and and one of the thing is that with the costing points what happened here is that i i myself work in aldi supermarket before right so i i spent about 6 years with the company and you know learned a lot about supermarket business uh, ranging from ops to different positions and we have the, this approach like for example instead of having 10 different varieties of olive oil we'll work with just two different varieties of olive oil so instead of having like you know showcasing 10 different brands that you can pick from olive oil we just say hey these are two brands that you can get from us how many do you have working for you what's your workforce uh, like you, like the workforce so globally we have a workforce of around 75 people in australia it's close to headcount is 38 now 38 people in so australia a, and 75 globally so that's a lot less than what's what's employed in supermarkets exactly and this is where you know we we are a startup we are a fast growing startup and uh, startups always tend to follow the lean structure and hence grow rapidly and this is where we want to show that like you know uh, that the delivery is the future of the thing and not only it helps customers to you know and this is this is one of our customers mentioned that it takes me about 20 minutes to get ready and go to a supermarket to drive around and find a parking and it's unbelievable that you are going to deliver my goods in 20 minutes so where are you based at the moment you're in sydney i am in sydney at this stage so uh, you plan to expand nationally Yes so we are actually launching Melbourne in next 3 weeks we already have get a sites getting ready in Melbourne uh, and of course like uh, we already have in fact team in Melbourne but because of lockdown as you know the things are a bit slow in the country so in next 3 weeks we are expanding to uh, Melbourne market opening our stores across Melbourne CBD and we'll be doing same in Brisbane Adelaide and Perth exactly Brisbane Tasmania Adelaide Perth they all are all are on the cards and in fact you know since you know with all this buzz we getting customers all over all across australia like you know hey and and we you know one thing we have seen between the customers is that they've been customers saying hey if i know you're not delivering to my area is there any way if you, even if you don't deliver in 20 minutes can i get my groceries because that shows the real need that it's not only about 20 minutes as well it's about people struggling to get their groceries in these hard times so how has it work i mean you have people taking the order and then uh processing it these 38 people take the order and then packing the goods is that right uh so 
Exactly. So 38 is like uh, all together had count in Australia, including the team and all that stuff, right? So how it works is that you go to web app, uh, www.gz.store. We have an app is launching soon as well. So you, first of all, you don't need to download anything. You go to www.gz.store, you pick your items, you pay online through Stripe, and then order comes to our team. They will pick and pack and our, our drivers, which we employ directly. So we don't have subcontractors. We employ our drivers directly as well. So they will get right on an e-bike and deliver your groceries in 20 minutes to you. And, and it's packed straight away. Yep, exactly. And our structure is built like this. Our warehouse structures are like this, you know, that you can just go in the warehouse. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's not like a big supermarket. It's built like this where, you know, it's easy to pick and pack the items. Uh, at, at the end of day, we are a tech company, right? So we have screens, for example, literally one of the examples I can give you, let's say a customer order flash in, it will flash on the screen and it will tell the picker which aisles he needs to pick from. Right. So he's not wasting time to look for the items. And so you, you, you operate globally. Which countries do you operate in? So basically as a part of, uh, so GZ Glo Global, which runs different dark kitchens as well. So we operate out of Australia, New Zealand, uh, UK, US, and we recently launched in India as well. But that's, that's a part of our dark kitchens offering. The, the grocery stores offering is just limited to ANZ region at this stage. Right, okay. And if, but are you planning to have grocery stores going global as well? Exactly. Because, see, we already have the infrastructure. We already have the team overseas. Uh, we already have that customer base. So for us, the expansion is really easy on the cards. So what's been the response to uh, GCGO here? Uh, in fact, the customers are loving it. Uh, we have a 99% satisfaction rate among the customers. Uh, the average delivery time is about 15 minutes at this stage. Uh, what we have seen is that, you know, like people are referring to the neighbors, right? That's that's the biggest effect we have seen. That, you know, we delivered to someone in one apartment building and then you see next day that four other people are ordering from the same apartment building. It's just like, and then, you know, customer is saying that, hey, like, you know, I referred it. And what we have done is that... Uh, you know, a lot of companies are relying on email support or, you know, let's say uh, chat support and all that stuff. And and customers find it really cumbersome sometimes to do the email support and chat support. We have a WhatsApp chat, WhatsApp support. So basically, if you are not finding answer for everything, anything in the in the app or you want to know anything, you just WhatsApp us and our team will respond to you within one minute. Right. You don't have to wait for the lengthy emails. You just WhatsApp us from our app. And then literally you build it. And the other solution that we are building in the market, because of course, as you grow in the market, you get a lot of feedback and all that stuff. You know, there are people uh, like, you know, who, who like, you know, specifically the baby bloomers population who find it hard to use the apps and all that stuff. And they would love to use our product because they are in the need of groceries and all that stuff. And literally we are building a WhatsApp product for them. So which means like, you know, people who are uh, uncomfortable in using the apps or, you know, who are finding apps for hard to use, they can just go on WhatsApp and shop groceries on WhatsApp as well. So that's something our tech team is building in the back. So you're so so. Let me understand this. You're, I I can go to GCGO on an app and on the website. Is that right? Yep, exactly. And soon you'll be able to order your groceries from WhatsApp as well. That will be that. It's in the progress. There are some older customers who are not accustomed to working with websites and apps. How do you deal with that? So basically we are building a WhatsApp tool because most of them use WhatsApp nowadays. WhatsApp is a very popular tool in the world. So literally uh, our tech team is building on it. It will be launching in the next four weeks. So you can just go to WhatsApp and you can just do your shopping on WhatsApp. You can see all the items on WhatsApp. You can just choose and our team will deliver it to you. 
And also, you know, if you're not feeling comfortable in paying online, our team has the small F post queer readers. You can just pay and tap your card and it will be there. So we are building solution for that as well. And everyone has access to WhatsApp. So there's no problem with that. Exactly. Exactly. So a lot of people are going to use that. And in fact, the, uh, we did a test run and, you know, the feedback has been incredible from people that, you know, it, it'll be like, I use WhatsApp to chat with my friends and you can say that in WhatsApp, I'm able to order my groceries now. So that's something we'll be building in next four weeks. It's in the pipeline. So we'll be launching in next four weeks. Well, Drew, that's fascinating to see. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Leon. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. The unemployment figures came out and went down from 4.6% to 4.5%. There's there's serious doubts about it. I mean, we've got uh, 146,300 people fewer working, and that's the number employment fell by. And hours worked, there's questions about hours worked, that's crashed too. So it confirms to me the old saying of there's lies, damn lies and statistics. What's your view about that? Well, it's it's safe to say that the unemployment rate right now is a a little bit misleading. As you said, the the level of employment fell 146,300 people in August, and yet the unemployment rate declined. And I I think it's worth discussing how that occurs. And and what has happened throughout this pandemic is that every time a, a state or the entire country has a lockdown, what we see is a lot of people lose their job, but instead of being shifted into the unemployment category, they actually leave the workforce. And and the reason why that happens is because to be considered unemployed in Australia, you need to be actively looking for work and available to begin work. And when you're in strict lockdown, it's often very difficult to begin a new job. And in some cases, there's very few jobs that you could even search for if you wanted to. So that's what I think is happening with the labour force uh, figures at the moment. A lot of people have lost their jobs. They'd be desperate to get new jobs, but they're not being um, characterised as being unemployed because they're not actively searching for work right now. So uh, what impact did this have on hours worked? I mean, that went down quite dramatically. Yeah, that's right. Hours worked fell uh, 3.7%. Um, compared with the 1.1% decline in employed. Now, the hours worked statistics have been really valuable throughout the pandemic because it it captures more of the impact of of these lockdowns and and the impact that's having on the workforce. In terms of the impact, it was pretty even across the board, Um, down 3.6% for men, down uh, 3.9% for women. Um, Part-time workers were hit to a slightly larger degree, um, down 5.4% versus 3.4% uh, for full-time workers. And the impacts, I mean, it mostly reflected the lockdown states. So hours worked fell 6.5% in New South Wales, uh, 5.3% in Queensland and uh, 3.4% in Victoria. So it's very much a lockdown story. And the impact in those states offset um, some strength in other regions across the country. I mean, so how many hours would that be in total? It'd be thousands of hours, wouldn't it? Oh, geez, that's a, a very good question. There we go. Um, hours worked felt 66 million in the month. That is a, a lot of hours. 66 million hours? Really? 66 million hours, that's right. And so really, uh, the figures we should be looking at very closely with these uh, labour stats, uh, uh, hours worked, that would be the critical issue to look at. Yeah, that's right. I'd definitely be focusing more upon hours worked right now, uh, particularly while so much of the country is in lockdown. 
um, compared with the more conventional measures that we normally focus on, which is things such as unemployment or even uh, the employment figures. So basically it comes down to uh, the issue of the conventional definition of employment. Uh, it's, it can, if someone's actively searching for work or available to begin, and there are people who aren't doing that, and they've dropped out. So that's affected the, the labour force figures. Yeah, that's right. You know, we have a, a pretty strict definition of unemployed uh, from a statistical standpoint. You've got to be actively searching for work. You must be readily available to begin work. And that's a definition that has um, done pretty well for Australia and other countries for, you know, decades. Um, but it's just not designed particularly well for a pandemic-type event when people are stopped from being able to work. You know, they're stopped from being able to begin new jobs. And, and so the unemployment statistics just really aren't designed particularly well for the current economic environment we find ourselves in, which is why it's wise to, you know, overlook those statistics right now in favour of other measures that perhaps capture the economic environment a little bit better. Oh, the other issue, too, is, I mean, if you take out all the people who have dropped out of the labour force, and for that matter, people who are working close to, what, zero hours, which is affecting their income, but who are still counted as employed, if you add all of those in, what would the actual unemployment figure be? It would be quite massive. It would be much bigger than 4.5%, surely. Absolutely. Yeah, so if you include these additional groups, that the people not working any hours, um, the people who have dropped out of the workforce, you're looking at an unemployment rate of a little bit above 10% right now. Um, that compares with about uh, 17% unemployment rate in sort of middle of last year, back when the entire country was in lockdown, um, just to put that number into a little bit of perspective. Now, I think it's important to remember, though, that a 10% unemployment rate in a pandemic, you know, in, in hard lockdown, is not the same as a 10% unemployment rate that occurs naturally, such as what we've seen in previous recessions we've had back in the, the 1980s and, and 1990s. While the unemployment rate is currently 10%, as soon as the nation open, opens up, we're going to see that uh, unemployment rate come down you know, pretty sharply. Uh, that said, I mean, if you're going to have a whole lot of people rejoining the workforce there mightn't be the same number of jobs available. So that could actually force up the unemployment figures. Wouldn't that be the case? Uh, that's potentially the case, although what we are seeing at the moment is there's still a lot of jobs being created. Um, there's a lot of job postings online right now. They remain well above pre-pandemic levels. So I think that does that's you know cause for some optimism about what um, the economy might look like as we do open up from these lockdowns. So... I'm certainly glass half full um, with regards to what can happen with uh, employment and the unemployment rate once New South Wales and Victoria do begin to emerge from these lockdowns. Uh, that said, I mean, uh, the RBA and a lot of economists are tipping that the economy will uh, power back up uh, once we get out of these lockdowns. And they're basing that on the fact that, uh, well, you know, once people... Uh, once we came out of the lockdowns, once we came out of detention, people started spending more. But that was uh, that was out of previous lockdowns when we were coming into a zero COVID environment. We're not doing that now. And that could affect the figures, couldn't it? Well, it certainly could. I think it's a, a big source of, of risk for the economy. I think there is a lot of uncertainty around how uh, households and businesses will react to living with COVID as opposed to COVID zero. Once... Sydney and Melbourne emerge from lockdown, it's 
going to be an environment where there's still going to be a lot of cases and there's going to be a lot, you know, cases are going to be increasing uh, as well for, from day to day. So there is going to be that health risk associated with uh, going out to shopping centres, eating out, all the, the standard things that we normally take for granted. So it is going to be interesting to see what impact that has on economic activity. I do suspect that, you know, the recovery from these lockdowns could be a little slower than what we saw with the lockdowns last year, um, partly because of that behavioural impact, as well as the fact that while we still have a high degree of fiscal stimulus washing around the economy, it's not quite as large as it was um, last year when we, we still had JobKeeper in effect. Well, the issue too is, I mean, the RBO, Philip Lowe uh, said this week that... Uh, uh, there's no way we're going to lift interest rates till 2024. And he, he sort of put a ho – he hosed all of that down. Now, uh, so the RBA is – these figures won't make any difference to the RBA. Well, no, um, no difference at all. I mean, they expected some pretty bad employment figures in, in August. Um, September, October would probably be quite weak as well. So this is all factored into their outlook for the economy. And basically what they're saying is they think this is going to be temporary, but it does shift the recovery back uh, a few months. And I guess that sort of confirms to them that they're thinking that they should wait till 2024 is probably on the money. Now, obviously, a lot can change between now and, and 2024. But, but, but right now, I think that sort of conservative approach is, is probably the, the best approach, particularly given the uncertainty that surrounds uh, pandemic economy. We don't know whether there'll be any future lockdowns. If there is, then, you know, that can push back the recovery again. So I think just being cautious is probably the right approach for the Reserve Bank right now. Okay, so the recovery might not be that, that might not be that robust. And for that matter, we would have to ask, well, the economy will be substantially weaker because there'll be a lot more debt around, both in households and, and in government. Yeah, that's potentially going to be an issue that um, both households and, and governments will, will need to deal with. While there is a lot of um, government debt, a lot more government debt than there was before the pandemic, you know, the, the government sector does tend to be pretty good at absorbing that impact and, that, and they can work around that. Households, it's a little bit more different. Um, they sort of need to prioritise their, their balance sheets. But, but right now they do have a, a lot of savings, or at least some households do, and, and potentially that might provide some upside uh, risk to the economy as we do emerge from lockdown. But, but I think that the key looking forward, though, is just that there's still going to be a high degree of uncertainty. And these lockdowns could return in, in some fashion um, next year and beyond, which means from, to some extent, what we are likely to see is a recovery where it's a bit of a, a two steps forward, one step back type scenario. It's not going to be a, a linear uh, recovery. And I think policymakers will be aware of that and sort of adjust their policy accordingly. Well, uh, Callum, that's all quite fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, France is seeking to enlist European Union support to delay a planned EU-Australia trade deal as part of a plan to punish Australia for what it regards as serial deceit and subterfuge by Canberra before it cancelled the contract for 12 attack-class French submarines. The $90 billion submarine contract was a centrepiece of French-Australian cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, but the Australians have instead opted to form a US-UK-Australia pact, dubbed AUKUS, and build eight nuclear-powered submarines likely to be delivered between 2030 and 2040. The EU Commission President, 
Ursula von der Leyen, weighed into the diplomatic row on Monday, saying France had been treated unacceptably by the US, Australia and the UK, and that many questions remained unanswered. EU foreign ministers were due to discuss the crisis on the sidelines of a UN General Assembly in New York. The next round of EU-Australia trade talks, the 12th, are due next month, and it remains to be seen how deeply other EU states wish to become embroiled in the fallout from the French loss of a commercial contract. The EU is Australia's third biggest market. And iron ore's price has, has experienced a staggering fall to US $90 a tonne, causing shockwaves in the share market, as experts warn Australia's economy is in a worse position than any other nation because of its deteriorating relationship with China. It's first time the iron ore price has dipped below the US $100 a tonne mark in 14 months. Australia's most valuable export has seen its price hemorrhage more than 60% from a record high in May when it hit close to US $240 a tonne. The collapse in price caused $50 billion to be wiped off the ASX, closing 2.1% and 155.5 points lower on Monday afternoon, and hitting a two-month low. Mining company stocks were worst hit, with Fortescue and Rio Tinto down more than 3%, and BHP soaring down by 4.2%. And stock markets from Hong Kong to New York were hit by a major sell-off on Monday, as a massive Chinese real estate conglomerate called China Evergrande Group faces a potentially devastating debt default. Evergrande is over-leveraged, a fancy way of saying it holds too much debt. How much? $300 billion worth. Investors fear a default could destabilise the financial system in China, one of the world's top economies. Evergrande's crisis pierces the veil of the Chinese real estate sector and the artificially valued tracts of land and development projects. Experts say that could depress existing home values, which could dampen Chinese consumer spending, a consequence that could reverberate worldwide. Evergrande has its hands in so many other industries in China, wealth management, hospitality, media, natural resources, that some experts worry about a contagion or spillover effect. In other words, if one major economic pillar collapses, will it spread to other markets or regions? Another concern is credit markets. Evergrande has done so much borrowing and so many lenders are at risk of getting burned. Would its potential default have a ripple effect for other borrowers? On both of these questions, experts say it's still too soon to tell. And Victoria's building industry will be shut for two weeks after a day of unprecedented protests at the construction union's head office, with windows smashed, projectiles thrown at senior officials and riot police closing down a major city street. Some critical infrastructure work, such as hospitals and some ongoing level crossing removal projects, will continue during the shutdown that started from midnight on Monday. The Andrews government formally announced a two-week shutdown late on Monday night, less than three hours before the closure was, due, was to begin at 11.59pm. All projects in metropolitan Melbourne, City of Ballarat, City of Greater Geelong, Surf Coast Shire and Mitchell Shire will be shuttered, with limited exempts for workers to attend closed sites to respond to emergencies or, or perform urgent and essential work to protect health and safety. Industrial Relations Minister Tim Pallas said the decision had been driven by multiple outbreaks linked to the industry, as well as widespread non-compliance with COVID safety rules. Over the course of Monday, hundreds of protesters rallied outside the CFMEU's Elizabeth Street office. Some protesters threatened to burn their union tickets and directed abuse at CFMEU Victorian Secretary John Setka, who addressed the crowd but was shouted down and called the bitch of Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews. The union, builders and senior Andrews government officials had been locked in meetings on Monday to stop the building sector from grinding to a halt, with the CFMEU threatening to walk off major projects if a compromise couldn't be reached. The Victorian government claims it had no choice but to shut down construction work for two weeks, after a safety inspection blitz revealed 50% non-compliance with COVID-19 rules. 
The property council of Australia estimates the cost at over $1 billion each week and an immense personal cost to the 320,000 Victorian workers and property and construction businesses. And Christian Porter's resignation from the industry portfolio has been met with criticism and frustration across the Australian technology sector, which will now be working with its eighth minister in as many years. Several groups are now urging Prime Minister Scott Morrison to replace Mr Porter with a senior minister able to provide an effective voice to Cabinet and willing to stay long-term in the portfolio. Porter's resignation was accepted by Mr Morrison, who, shortly before leaving for the US, announced current Energy Minister Angus Taylor will now also be Acting Industry Minister. Industry groups have expressed disappointment in another change in Minister, while parts of the technology sector have chided the ongoing instability. Airtree co-founder Daniel Petrie said for nearly a decade the industry portfolio had not been treated with the importance it deserved as an an economy building tool. Australian Information Industry Association Chief Executive Ron Gauchy said the industry was disappointed that the portfolio had undergone disruptive changes. The AIIA was able to hold several meetings with Mr Porter and he was very receptive to industry voices, Mr Gauchy said. But with him lasting fewer than six months, the Digital Technology Group wants more stability and Mr Porter's replacement to be a respected voice in Cabinet. Shadow Minister for Industry and Innovation Ed Husick said Mr Porter had been ineffective and uninterested in the portfolio. And about $6.2 billion in JobKeeper wage subsidies were paid to businesses with more than $10 million in turnover that did not experience a minimum 30% fall in turnover in the first six months of the scheme. Analysis shows billions of dollars of the JobKeeper wage subsidy went to businesses with more than $10 million in turnover that did not experience lower revenue in the first six months of the pandemic. To receive a fortnightly $1,500 wage subsidy for each employer for six months to September 2020, firms with less than $1 billion in annual turnover need to have recorded an actual downturn in March when compared to the prior year or tell the Australian Taxation Office that their revenue would decline by 30% or more in April or the June quarter. Firms with more than $1 billion in sales required a 50% turnover decline. Labor, Independent Senator Rex Patrick and the Greens have called for a public register which shows how much firms with more than $10 million in turnover received in JobKeeper, a move that the federal government has to date resisted. Analysis of Parliamentary Budgetary Office data by governance advisory firm Ownership Matters suggests that businesses with more than $10 million in turnover represent about 2% by number of recipients but may have received up to 20% of the payments made under the scheme. And the pandemic has exacerbated enterprise bargaining's long-running decline. Agreements now cover less than 11% of the private sector workforce, and their wages have not budged in nine months. The coverage is the lowest since 2018, when it hit a low of 10.6%, and far below coverage rates of 17% in 2014, and about 25% in 2010. Wage growth in new private sector agreements has also stagnated, staying at 2.6% for the third successive quarter. The latest trends report on agreements from the Attorney-General's Department show more than 9,000 current agreements in the private sector covered 1.24 million workers, down from almost 1.4 million the same time last year, and they make up 10.9% of the sector's workforce. And the nation's leading retailers, from fashion and sporting goods to auto parts and furniture, have called on governments to provide a legal framework for shoppers to declare their vaccine status when walking into stores, as the chains seek more certainty about how to handle the prickly issue as shops reopen. 
Companies such as furniture retailer Nick Scarly and Super Retail Group, whose retail banners include Rebel Sport, Super Cheap Auto and Boating, Camping and Fishing, have also increased their pool of available cash or staff to build a reserve bench of employees in case a store is declared a COVID-19 exposure site, forcing staff to isolate themselves for weeks. These are two of the many minefields retailers are now preparing to cross as they prepare for an easing of restrictions in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT, allowing them to open their bricks and mortar stores to customers for the first time in months. Top of the list of their concerns is how retail frontline workers will determine whether shoppers have received both COVID-19 vaccinations, how to prove their vaccine status and the legalities around even asking for proof in the first place. And Transurban has cemented its dominance of Sydney's toll roads by securing full ownership of the city's newest motorway, West Connex, in an $11.1 billion deal. The Transurban-led consortium has won the auction to buy a 49% stake in the Sydney West Connex motorway project, outlying $11.1 billion for the remaining interest in the asset that it doesn't already own. The Australian-listed group is expected to launch a $4 billion-plus equity raising to pay for the acquisition. Other consortium members are the Australian Super and Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Working for Transurban are Baron Joey Capital Partners, Morgan Stanley and UBS. When Transurban and its backers purchased a 51% stake in West Connex in 2018, it paid $9.3 billion for the 33km road project. At the time, it was split four ways, with Transurban paying $4.1 billion for its half share of the 51% West Connex interest. And a fractious bidding war has broken out for Victorian power grid owner Alcinet Services after gas pipeline giant APA Group emerged with a high $10 billion bid pitched as keeping sensitive infrastructure under Australian ownership, but failed to dislodge Canada's Brookfield from pole position in the takeover battle. APA's $2.60 a share bid in cash and script tops Brookfield's $2.50 a share cash offer, but the Canadian player already has its nose in front after securing an eight-week period of exclusive due diligence. APA was frustrated Osnet opened its books to Brookfield given it has lobbed its first $2.32 a share buyout tilt on September the 1st, one day after the Canadian made an offer, and then made Osnet aware on September the 16th that it would return with a higher bid. Instead, Osnet, a major infrastructure player which owns and operates the Victorian Electricity Transmission Network along with gas and power distribution, sided with Brookfield given it had a firm cash offer on the table. Osnet is still weighing the merits of the APA's higher bid and left the door open for the pair to hold talks after Brookfield's due diligence process ends. The Canadian bid faces a high bar for Foreign Investment Review Board approval given a tougher national security test, which applies to sensitive energy assets, while competition issues could also prove a hurdle for APA's given its dominant gas market position. And Kathmandu's underlying net profit more than doubled to New Zealand's $66.3 million in 2021, but the outdoor leisure retailer warned first half earnings in 2022 would fall due to lockdowns, supply chain delays and higher shipping costs. Bottom line profit for the 12 months ending July rose to New Zealand 63.1 million compared with New Zealand 8.9 million in 2020, which included more than New Zealand $22 million in one-off costs. Underlying net profit rose 110% to $66.3 million New Zealand dollars, with strong growth at Rip Curl and hiking boot business Obos offsetting weaker earnings from the Kathmandu brand. And Mars Wrigley, the family-owned confectionery, gum and pet food giant, will invest $30 million at its Ballarat factory in central Victoria to advance its local manufacturing capabilities, laying down the infrastructure for future growth, including using the facility to ramp up its exports to key markets in Asia. 
The investment comes on top of the $37 million in funding unveiled in 2020 as Mars Wrigley, the multi-billion dollar food business that is ranked among the biggest family-owned companies in the US, directs more capital expenditure into its Australian operations. It comes as a business is reacting to new trends running through the confectionery and snacking category triggered by COVID-19 and home lockdowns, including the growing popularity of families gathering around the TV for movie nights and binge-watching shows on popular streaming services. Mars Wrigley Australia General Manager Andrew Leakey said there were significant opportunities for growth of its Australian business, which raked in sales of more than $1.66 billion in calendar 2019 across key, key brands such as Mars, M&M's, Maltesers, Milky Way, Hubba Bubba, Eclipse Mints, Extra, and its bulging pet care portfolio that includes Pedigree, Whiskers and Yukonuba. An ASX-listed superannuation investment manager, Australian Ethical, has become a major investor in the CSIRO's venture capital fund, Main Sequence, saying its $250 million fund gives it a unique chance to get in on the ground of world-changing companies. The Main Sequence fund is the second fund, and the firm has already backed a wide variety of deep tech or science-based startups that it says demonstrate the potential to solve the world's biggest problems. It now has $490 million in funds under management, and its best-known investment so far is in plant-based meat company V2 Food. Other main secrets investments include agriculture software company Regrow, healthcare data analytics company Prospection, satellite communication startup MyWriter, cyber security firm Casada, Gilmore Space, quantum computing company QControl, and light detection and ranging system specialist Baraja. Australian Ethical reported in June that its pool of assets grew by half over the year as investors in superannuants, frustrated by slow progress in climate action by governments, voted with their wallet. It claims its success is built on the principle that money can be used to create a path to a better future and says it will only invest in ethical companies and institutions that have positive impact on people, the planet and animals. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Alistair Leithwood, Chief Commercial Officer of IRI, a world-leading big data analytics business that works with many of the world's world's household brands, food, grocery, liquor, petrol and convenience pharmacy in Australia. We'll talk about the health and wellness sector has performed during COVID and how shoppers have responded. And I'll be talking to economist Sarah Hunter from BIS Oxford Economics. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.